Well, folks, Jadevsha Arish, it's Jerry Adams and Shaw, Augusta Sulagom, Gowell Shivsha, Gumoy. Just to let you know that I have a, a sore back. I actually heard it decades ago playing handball against a chap 20 years younger than me. And it soon got better, but every so often it comes back to trouble me. Especially if I neglect to stretch and bend in the manner prescribed by the physio. And it's been niggling at me for now on five, six weeks. I told your man this because he saw me hobbling along and he, of course, he said, it takes longer to heal as you get older. Your man thinks he knows everything, that he's an authority on everything. But in this case, he's right. So I winced my way gingerly through my daily routine. And I actually had noticed recently that some of my close friends have morphed into we old men. And I can see this in the way that they walk, their geriatric gait, the cautious way they traverse slippery or wet surfaces or go across roads or journey up inclines. Like old lads. And that's the way my bad back has me. Maybe that's the way others see me. As an old lad. And that certainly is your man's view. I find all that a bit disconcerting. You know, I can still claim the cemetery wall. And I clamber up a eagle if I take my time. Or the hatchet field. And I can still puck a slither as well and as far as much younger hurlers. But I can't run too fast for too long or too far. And I do like a wee nap after my dinner. And I do get stiff sitting in the car on long journeys or sitting anywhere now that I think about it. And my back really is sore. Three score and ten, your man told me. That's what the good Lord gives us. Three score and ten. And you're already three years over that. You haven't much time left. Don't talk stupid, I rebuked him. Once the good weather comes in and my back gets better, I'll be as good as new. Your days are numbered, he retorted. You'll never be as good as new, Arish. You're more recycled material than new. Only it would hurt me more than him. I could have punched him. Especially when he told me that I'm in the last phase of my life. I've never thought of it like that. I don't actually mind growing older. It's natural. If you have the right attitude, growing older doesn't mean growing old. That's my philosophy anyway. That's what I told your man. I might be in the departure lounge, I said to him, but my flight is delayed. Such a yarn, your man said. You our lads are all the same, delusional. The graveyard will never be full till you're in it. And that's how we left it. He really knows how to hurt me. 
It's very annoying. He should have more respect for his elders. And now to something much, much, much more important. And that's the collusion between the British intelligence services, the RUC, the UDR, the British Army and loyalist paramilitary organisations. It is a fact of life. And that is now indisputable. A succession, a sus- I can nearly say it, a succession of reports have confirmed the extent to which Loyalist death squads operated under the patronage and direction of the British state. This week, the police ombudsman produced yet another report. It examines 11 killings in the South Belfast area, five of which occurred on Wednesday, February the 5th, 1992. That morning, two UDA killers walked into Graham's bookies on the Armour Road and opened fire. They killed five people and wounded nine others. Claims of collusion between the UDA and British agencies were dismissed at that time by many in the political establishment and much of the media. Thirty years later and within days of the anniversary of that atrocity, the families were handed a police ombuds man's report that confirms collusion. It also confirmed that one of the weapons involved was part of the consignment from the apartheid South African regime brought into the north by British intelligence and its agents within the UDA, UVF and Ulster resistance. Collusion worked hand in hand with a British strategy which sought to demonise Republicans and the wider nationalist base. Every effort was made by the British and Irish governments and their political opponents to marginalise and to censor Sinn Féin. The five who were killed in the Armour Armour Road bookies were the victims of this strategy. So too were the three people killed in the Falls Road Sinn Féin office the day before. And just on the anniversary of that atrocity at our office, we held a short ceremony to remember Paddy Lockern and Pat McBride and Michael O'Dwyer. They were all shot dead when RUC officer Alan Moore walked into the office claiming to be a journalist. Within minutes, he had killed Paddy and Pat, who worked in the building, and Michael, a young man, in the office with his two-year-old son to discuss a constituency issue. And two others were wounded. Alan Moore went on to take his own life. 24 members of Sinn Féin and family members were killed during that time. Many, many more were wounded. Hundreds of nationalists were killed. Thankfully, the war is now over, though some are continuing it by other means. And we can make no sense of any of this except in the context of British government involvement in Ireland and the malign influence and shameful methods it has used and continues to use to maintain the Union. The resignation of Paul Given, the attitude of the DUP, the behaviour of Boris Johnson and his government are all part of this. 
The end of British rule in Ireland cannot come soon enough. The Good Friday Agreement has an agreed process to do this, if that's what the people want. I look forward to the end of London rule here and to the liberation of the Unionist and Loyalist people along with the rest of us. Then, without the backing of English politicians, corrupt English politicians, the Unionist and Loyalist people would join with everyone else to forge a new future based on equality. Speed the day. Maybe then the victims of the conflict and of collusion will get to know what happened and who authorised the killings of their loved ones. Talking of anniversaries, I'm, I'm, I'm minded that the Republican women of the time of the treaty debate led the way in opposing the treaty. And the proclamation of the Republic in 1916 actually addresses itself to Irish men and Irish women. Remember, women didn't have the vote at that time. And that was a very clear recognition that there must be equality between men and women. There has to be. Nibay, Ian Searsha Naharan, Gan Searsha Naman. So back to the treaty, when the details became public, Dr Kathleen Lynn, who was a member of the Irish Citizens Army and Chief Medical Officer during the rise and recorded in her diary, peace terms, but what a peace not what Connolly and Mullen and countless others died for. The Sackendall voted on January the 7th, 1922, by 64 votes to 57 to endorse the treaty negotiated just weeks earlier. A handful of votes. A handful. Five days later, the executive of Common the Mon met in Dublin, Countess Markovich chaired the meeting. The resolution opposing the treaty was blunt and definitive. It said that this executive committee of the Common the Mon reaffirms their allegiance to the Republic of Ireland and therefore cannot support the Articles of Agreement signed in London on the 6th of December 1921. The motion was passed by the executive by 24 votes to 2. One month later, on February the 5th, a hundred years ago, last Saturday or the Saturday before, almost 500 women gathered in the mansion house for a convention of Common the Mon. It was the first of the national organisations to debate the treaty. When the vote was taken, 419 members voted against the treaty and 63 voted in favour. The six women members of the Second Doll all voted against the treaty. They were Countess Margovich, Kathleen Clark, Margaret Pierce, Mary McSweeney, Kathleen O'Callaghan, and Dr. Ada English. Kate O'Callaghan's husband, Michael, a former mayor of London, had been murdered by the auxiliaries. In her address to the, ex- to the convention, she said, the women of Andal are women of character and they will vote for principle, not for expediency. 
Minnie McSwinney, whose brother Terence died on hunger strike, warned that there, that should the treaty be accepted, she would become the Free State's first rebel. Countess Markovitch said, I am pledged as a rebel, an incontrovertible rebel, because I am pledged to the one thing, a free and independent republic. Republican women took the lead in opposing the treaty, as I said earlier. Sinead McCool, in her book, No Ordinary Women, publishes the names of 552 women who were imprisoned by the provisional government and then the Free State Government in Kilmainham Jail, Mountjoy Jail and in the North Dublin Union. The Free State Government banned the Common Demand in January 1923. In the decades that followed, the Common Demand continued to play a crucial role in the struggle to end partition. And I want to go out, if I may, with Shebel and her rendition of Manra Naharan, a song rejuvenated by Sean O'Reira and brought to all of our attentions by Sean O'Shea. So Gunyuri and Ta Libsha Gulyar. Shoot.